Um, as many of you know, my family was able to take some uh, much appreciated time off last week. Uh, so I think we used our time wisely. Faith and I took our four boys and uh, we went to Minneapolis for the week. And for a few days, it was just the six of us. We had a, a lot of fun, a lot of great time. And then my, uh, my mom and my dad, uh, my brother and his kids, they all flew up to the cities and we were able to celebrate Christmas together. So it was, it was just an awesome time. We definitely made some great memories. Um, we we actually left a week ago last Monday, and if you can remember back that far, I know we've slept a lot since then, uh, but we had some snow that day, and about halfway to the cities, um, we encountered some pretty heavy snow, so by the time we got to the hotel, it was just slush and ice, and we were having videos sent to us from people whose cars were sliding backwards on the road, and I think someone sent us a, a video of a bus that had completely like turned sideways up in the cities and was going backwards on the street, and so that night, we uh, decided to go out for dinner, and uh, our little van, man, it's just, uh, it's the little van that could, you know, it just tries so hard, and uh, we came up to some, you know, little, I don't even know if you call them hills, but they were, there was enough ice on them that our van didn't make it, and there were people behind us, so we had to turn around and go a different direction, and, you know, our kids are in the back seat, and they're just wondering, what in the world is going on? Like, I thought this was vacation, and so we just told them, you know, it's just all part of the adventure. You just got to have, you have to make the most of it, and uh, it ended up being a great week. It, one of the memories that I'm sure is going to stick with me for a long time is going to the Mall of America with um, all of our family once, you know, once they got there. So uh, just a show of hands, how many of you have been to the Mall of America? So almost all of the room. So you know this place is massive and it takes at least a couple days to get through everything if you're going to see all that this place has to offer. So the memory that I'm sure will stick with me is not something that you would typically remember uh, from a trip to the mall. So on the first day that my family was there after they flew in, um, of course, you know, my mom and my dad, my brother, his kids, everybody was excited to see each other. Cousins wanted to see cousins. Um, I wanted to see my mom and dad, and I hadn't seen my brother in a really long time. And... Uh, just to give you a little bit of picture of this week, we have our four boys, and we also have my brother's uh, three boys. So there's seven boys all under the age of seven, so or under the age of ten. I'm sorry, it, it was wild. So one of the first things my dad did was he grabbed Weston, my six-year-old, and they threw him up on his shoulders, not on his back, but on his shoulders. And they love to do this. They love to walk around. And so they're walking around the mall. The kids are following him because it's like, who's next? You know, who gets the next ride? And I'm sure your kids or your grandkids, they love to do, you know, the same thing. The only problem was that we were on the third floor. They were next to the railing. And I am extremely afraid of heights. <laughs> so I'm standing behind them. I'm watching this happen. And I get that weird feeling in my stomach. You know, how many of you are afraid of heights as well? So a few of you. If you're afraid of heights, you know exactly what I'm talking about. It's like the floor just drops out from beneath you. And I'm watching my son ride on my dad's shoulder. And I'm thinking, you know, I want more than anything for his feet to be firmly planted on the ground. Now, I'll just tell you, you know, nothing... Nothing happened, nothing bad, obviously. But my dad and I, we actually went back and forth. We were arguing about why he needed to step away from the rail a little bit. They actually had like different colored tile next to the rail. And I'm telling him it's probably because they don't want you next to the rail with a six-year-old on your shoulders. I mean, this kid, he's a wild man. So there's a reason that the ground is there. You know, it's to keep our feet, you know, firmly planted. And when you're afraid of heights, you believe that even more. Well, today we're going to start a new series, and uh, we're calling this series Stand Firm. 
You know, one thing I've learned in the 31 years of, of my life is that life can be difficult. Would you agree? Life can be difficult. You know, we're faced with challenges, we're faced with trials, and, and I would say even important life-changing decisions in just about every season that we go through. And although it's not quite the same as, uh, you know, sitting on someone's shoulders as they walk next to the railing three stories up at the mall, I do believe that when we read scripture, we get a picture that our Heavenly Father wants us to go through this life with our feet firmly planted. It was Billy Graham who once asked his listeners this question. He said, what is currently shaking your world? What is currently shaking in your world? You know, there are a lot of things that can shake up our world. Uh, you know, I think worrying about our future. You know, maybe you've got something that you're praying about or something that you're just kind of waiting for. Maybe it's, you know, a grandchild to come or um, a, a college decision or, you know, a decision, a decision that needs to be made in your family. So worrying about our future. What about, you know, wrestling with, with faith? I think we go through seasons, uh, like lifestyle, uh, life, life cycles of our faith. I think the church has life cycles too. Sometimes you feel just like you're on top of the world, and other times you feel like you're down in a valley. Everybody goes through seasons like that. I think we, we struggle with issues in our family. You know, that's enough to really shake up your world. And I would be willing to, to bet today that, you know, there are those of you sitting here today who there's probably some tension in your family. There's probably some things going on that you wish, you wish it wasn't there. I think another thing that tends to shake up our world is finances. You know, we tend to worry about those things. And, you know, it has, an, it has a way of really just kind of controlling our lives. The point is this. It's a shaky world out there. And, and I do believe that going into a new year, we could all use some hope that we can stand on. Amen? We, we could all use hope that we can stand on. Hope that we can build our lives on. And because this life is difficult and is often filled with problems of all kinds, I do believe that our Heavenly Father has filled His Word with promises. Because this life has problems, God has given us His promises. And these are promises that we can build our lives on. You know, the promises of God are, are given to us so that God's people can stand firm. They're given to help secure us when we go through life's storms. The promises of God are there, I would say, to equip God's people to live the life that he's called us to live. And that's what we're going to talk about over the next few weeks. What it means to, to stand firm and what it means to build our lives on the promises of God. So in the New Testament book of Acts, chapter 25 and 26, this is towards the end of the book of Acts, we see these, these two men who come face to face who couldn't have been more different from one another. Uh, one was a teacher. He was much further along in life. I think he's pretty wise at this point. He'd spent um, actually a few years in prison. All right, He likely had very few possessions to his name at this point. And he just had a couple of friends um, in his immediate vicinity. The other guy that he's staring at is a king. A much younger in years. Would have had unlimited resources at his disposal. Uh, was always accompanied by a group of Roman legionnaires or Roman soldiers everywhere he went. He had people following him. And he walked in a way that let everybody else know that he was someone important. Or at least he thought he was. So who were these men? 
Well, we know this simple teacher as the Apostle Paul. And this is older Apostle Paul. This is, again, I think much wiser Apostle Paul. We know he was a former rising star amongst the Jewish religious elite. But he, now he's a man whose life had been forever and, and radically transformed by the gospel. Radically changed by Jesus. In fact, at this point in time, Paul was just a simple missionary who traveled long distances to tell others about the hope that he had received in his own life because of Jesus. And then we have this king, this other guy. His name was Herod Agrippa II. Agrippa II was the last in a long line of Herods that began with his great-grandfather, Herod the Great, See, this was a family whose mission in life was to disrupt Christ's mission and to persecute Christians. So you go all the way back in this family history. You don't have to go back too far, but his great-grandfather, Herod the Great, actually attempted to kill baby Jesus by murdering all of the boys who were two years old and younger in and around the city of Bethlehem during the time of Christ's birth. We read about this story in Matthew chapter 2. I'm going to throw these up on the screen for you this morning if they're not already there. So you can kind of see uh, the timeline of his family. And then you have Agrippa II's grandfather. And this is Herod Antipas. We know that he ordered the beheading of John the Baptist. And we read about this in Matthew chapter 14. And then you have Agrippa II's father, Herod Agrippa I. We know that he executed James and he imprisoned Peter. This story is found in Acts 12. So talk about a cycle of generational sin. And maybe you look at a family like this and you think, man, that's, that's horrible. Of course, there's generational sin there. But I'm just going to be honest with you this morning. I, I think that as families, we have to be aware of this. I think it's easy to get into a cycle of generational sin ourselves and maybe not even recognize it. This family intentionally targeted Jesus' followers And now the Apostle Paul, a man who once persecuted Christians himself, is standing in front of this this other guy, King Agrippa II, whose family is widely known for killing Christians. But Paul is doing so as the most radically transformed, radically changed Christ follower that really we see in all of the New Testament. So at this point in time, Paul had been in prison for, for a while. I believe it's two years at this point. He was in trouble for preaching Christ. And as he stands face to face with King Agrippa II, he's doing so as a man who's on trial for his life. So his next words are really important. What he says, the events that unfold, are really important. So he's being questioned by multiple individuals about his faith and about the message that he's spreading. And as he's being questioned... His defense and his response to what's being said about him is so important. I believe it's so important for the church today. So if you would, look with me to Acts chapter 26. And we're going to look at verses 1 through 7. We're going to have these verses on the screen this morning, but you can also open your phone or your your tablet. Let's look at Acts 26, 1 through 7 together. Then Agrippa said to Paul, you may speak in your defense. So Paul, gesturing with his hands, I don't know exactly what he's doing here, started his defense. He says, I'm fortunate, King Agrippa, that you are the one hearing my defense today against all of these accusations made by the Jewish leaders. 
For I know that you are an expert on all Jewish customs and controversies. Now, please listen to me patiently. You know, I kind of wonder if Paul's being sarcastic here. (laughs) Saying, you know, I know that you're an expert in all Jewish customs and controversies. It's like, hey, your family is garbage. (laughs) You know, they, they, they've, they've, they've targeted and, and killed, persecuted multiple Christians. He didn't really say their family was garbage, but you know, I'm a sinner and that's what I think. So then you go to verse four and Paul says this, as the Jewish leaders are well aware, I was given a thorough Jewish training from my earliest childhood among my own people and in Jerusalem. If they would admit it, they know that I have been a member of the Pharisees, the strictest sect of our religion. And then Paul says this, verse 6, Now I am on trial, and this is why Paul is on trial. Because of my hope in the fulfillment of God's promise made to our ancestors. In fact, that is why the twelve tribes of Israel zealously worship God day and night. And they share the same hope I have, yet your majesty, you accuse me of having this hope. So how does Paul choose to respond when he's being questioned in what is undoubtedly a fork in the road, an important time in his life? You know, does he ask for mercy? Does he call on the rest of God's people to rise up and protest? You got to be loud. You got to let them hear you. Does he start to give a list of his own human accomplishments for Agrippa II to, to hear? You know, the answer is no to all of these things. He doesn't say or do any of these things. And you see, in what was likely a defining moment in his life, a defining moment in the ministry that God had given him, Paul gave just a brief introduction. I think there's a little sarcasm there. And then he shares these words in verse 6. Now I'm on trial because of my hope and the fulfillment of God's promise made to our ancestors. If you're taking notes today, the first truth that we're going to talk about is this, that Paul's only justification was that he believed in the promises of God. Paul's only justification was that he believed in the promises of God. See, Paul was on trial because of the hope or the faith that he had in Christ and for believing the promises of God. Instead of formulating some crafty defense, his response was to keep on believing And also persuade others to do the same. He did this everywhere he went. He never tried to come up with some crafty defense. He always tried to persuade others to believe as well. And he always pointed it it back to God. And in a moment that had all eyes on him, I want you to see this, church. He purposefully diverts the attention from himself, which would be easy to do. You know, to make it all about you. He purposefully diverts the attention from himself and he places it on one thing. He places it on the dependability of God. You actually don't have to read God's word very long before you encounter other men and women. These, we call them heroes of the faith. We call them that, but they really were just normal men and women who had faith in a big God. So we encounter these men and women who also had a sincere faith in God and who also built their lives on the promises of God. I'll just give you a few. Because of God's promises, Noah built an ark in preparation for rain before it had ever rained. Like they had never had rain before. Rain wasn't a thing. That's what the Bible tells us. Because of God's promises, Abraham left what was comfortable. He left a comfortable lifestyle, uh, you know, a lifestyle that he had built and worked hard on uh, to move to a place that he'd never seen before. Because God told him to go. 
Because of God's promises, David was able to face and defeat a giant. And in this story, because of God's promises, the apostle Paul found a grace worth living for and a grace ultimately worth dying for. When you read any of these stories, they all have a few things in common. Uh, Number one, we see they all believed in the promises of God. They all believed in the dependability of God. And two, they all responded to God's promises in faith. They, They weren't just pew sitters. They didn't come and just, you know, hear a message and, and think, wow, that sounds nice. They responded in faith. Their, their life was built on the promises of God. Their decision-making, the course of their life was determined by God's word. What's amazing to me is that none of these individuals waited to see the end result. They didn't wait to see the promise come to fruition before believing the promise. I think how often, you know, do we, we know that God's nudging us to do something or to say something, but we kind of want to see the end result. We want to make sure it's going to work out good for, you know, for our benefit before we do it. And man, that's just not what we see. That's not what we see faith is in God's word. Noah didn't wait for rain. Abraham didn't ask if he could get on Zillow and see if the house that he was moving to had all the right number of rooms and it was in the right community, you know, when God called him to move. He didn't do that. David, he didn't take a warm-up fight with a lesser opponent. You know, that would have been easy, right? Let's test my skills out and see if, see if I can actually do this thing. He didn't do that. They all had faith. They all believed without having to see the end result. And that's really what faith is. I mean, there's, there's some great verses in God's word that define faith for us. But I think one of the most important is in Hebrews 11, uh, specifically verse 1. And I'm also going to read verse 2 for you because it's talking about these people that we just mentioned. So Hebrews 11, verse 1 and 2, it says, Faith shows us the reality of what we hope for. It's the evidence of things we cannot see. And then it says, the, the, the Hebrew, writer, Hebrew writer says, through their faith, the people in the old days, they earned a good reputation. So all of these heroes of the faith, these really normal men and women, they believe the promises of God by faith. So what are some of the important life lessons that we can take away from, from their stories and things that we can learn from those who've even gone before us? You know, since I've been here, I've heard stories of people who are no longer with us and that were a part of this church who have less, left a, a lasting legacy because of their faith in Jesus. And many of you will know who I'm speaking of today. So what are some lessons that we can learn from these people? Well, I think one is this, that when the storms of life come, and they will come, you know, it's been said that you're either, uh, you're currently in one of life's storms, maybe that's you, uh, you're, you're just coming out of one li- of life's storms, or there's a storm on its way. I think all of us fit into that category. So when the storms of life do come, uh, when your future seems uncertain, when your marriage seems uncertain, when your health begins to fail, when plans don't work out, when family dynamics change, and when it's, when it's hard to pray... These stories teach us that God is always dependable. God is always dependable. His promises can always be trusted. 
See, you see, we too can choose to believe and stand firm on the promises of God because he's already proven himself dependable. He's already proven himself trustworthy in the past, not only through the stories of scripture, but in your own lives as well. We could have a number of stories today from all across this congregation about the faithfulness and the dependability of God. And it's stories like that, that there's stakes in the road that I believe God wants the church to, to build our lives on. You know, today you sit here as an individual who is so loved by God. And you do so in a long list of others who, who are also loved by God with the opportunity to stand firm and to build your lives on the promises of God. I love how the, the writer of Hebrews describes this long list of people that God loves, this long list of people that chose to stand firm and build their lives on his promises. That's really what the chapter of Hebrews 11 is all about. I'm not going to read the entire thing because there's 40 verses, but I want to just show you a few of these verses. I'll reread Hebrews 11 verse 1, and then I'll show you a couple of verses. Uh, verse 1, faith shows us the reality of what we hope for. It is the evidence of things we cannot see. It was by faith that Noah built a large boat to save his family from the flood. He obeyed God, who warned him about things that had never happened before. It was by faith that Abraham obeyed when God called him to leave home and go to another land that God would give him as his inheritance. He went without knowing where he was going. And even when he reached the land God promised him, he lived there by faith, for he was like a foreigner living in tents. It was by faith that even Sarah was able to have a child, though she was barren and she was too old. And listen to this. She believed that God would keep his, and what's the word? Promise. She believed in the promises of God. Verse 29, jumping ahead a little bit. It was by faith that the people of Israel went right through the Red Sea as though they were on dry ground. But when the Egyptians tried to follow, they were all drowned. There was a difference there in faith. I believe. So for 40 verses, actually, and I would encourage you to read this when you go home today. This is kind of the hall of fame of heroes of the faith, but I want you to keep in mind, these, these are normal men and women who just place their faith in a big God. For 40 verses, over and over again, we read, by faith, so-and-so believed. And what they believed in was the promises of God. By faith, they were able to stand firm on the promise. When times were tough, what did they do? They stood firm on the promise. When things didn't go their way, what, what, what happened? They stood firm on the promise. The people that are in, in this list. When God called them to step out into the unknown, they stood firm on the promise. For some of them, when persecution came because of their faith, they stood firm on the promise. And it really was all about the dependability and the faithfulness of God. That's going to lead us to our second truth for this morning, and that is this, that faith will outlive all other human accomplishments because faith points others to God. Faith will outlive all other human accomplishments because faith points others to God. See, God's word tells us that it's through faith that these people built a good reputation. That's why we're talking about them today. It's not because of their human accomplishments. It's because of the faith that they had in a big God. It's because he's trustworthy. It's because he's dependable. It's because he comes through. That's why we're talking about them today. 
All, you see, all of their individual stories, they, they were a little bit different from one another. But the theme of their lives, it was always the same. The theme of their lives is always this, that they stood firm on the promises of God. Your story is important. Your story is worth sharing. Your story is going to be different, though, from the person sitting next to you this morning, at least slightly. But I do believe that God wants the theme of all of our lives to be the same, that we would be individuals, that we would be families, that we would be a church who would build our lives on the promises of God, that we would stand firm on the promises of God. Amen? That is so important. There are so many promises in God's word that we can stand on. It was Max Licato who wrote, uh, one student of the scripture spent a year and a half trying to count all of God's promises in his word. So you have this young guy or girl, I don't know who it was, but spent a year and a half just trying to count up, tally up all of God's promises in his word. The number that he came to was this, 7,487. That's almost 8,000 promises made by God to his people through his word. Max Licato also, when talking about the promises of God, he had this to say. He said, God's promises are like pine trees in the Rocky Mountains of Scripture. They're abundant, unbending, and they are present in all seasons of life. Man, you start to hear, because life has problems, God has given us his promises. When life is difficult, God's promises are there. When the storms of life come, God's promises are there. One truth that that we all need to be reminded about today is this, that all of God's promises are trustworthy and all of God's promises are binding because not only is God a promise maker, he's also a promise keeper. God doesn't just make promises and then not come through. Everything that God says he will do, he does. Amen? We know this is true. We're actually going to sing a song here in a few minutes that has these words in it and uh, is really a response song after the message. And I'm going to ask that that be a time that, that you respond individually, that if this is something that you've struggled with, trusting God, depending on God, that this would be a time that you lay uh, that decision at his feet and you say, God, you know what? I know that your, your word is true. I know that you are who you say you are. And I'm going to live my life. I'm going to build my life on your promises because not only do you make promises, you also keep them. In Christ, we can stand firm on the promises of God, not because of who we are, not because of anything that we have done, but because of who God is and because of what he's done. A great example of this is Paul's own story from Acts 26, the story that we're reading today. You know, I think we have a tendency to look at the Apostle Paul's life and kind of elevate him and maybe, maybe try to give him some credit where we think he would want credit. You know, he hung in there when things were, were tough. I mean, he, he authored over two-thirds of the New Testament. But Paul would, I think Paul would say to the church today, no. God deserves all the glory. God deserves all the credit. There's an amazing passage in Acts 26 that, that illustrates this. Uh, verse 19 through 22, Paul's talking, he's having this dialogue with King Agrippa. He says this, And so, King Agrippa, I obeyed that vision from heaven. I preached first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they must repent of their sins and turn to God 
and prove they have changed by the good things that they do. Some Jews arrested me in the temple for preaching this, and they even tried to kill me. So all of these storms of life are happening in Paul's life. But listen to this, his response in verse 22. But God, he doesn't say, but Paul, or but Peter, or but Luke. He says, but God has protected me right up to this present time so that I can testify to everyone from the least to the greatest. See, God gave Paul the promise that he would be used by God to teach people about Jesus from Damascus to Jerusalem and all throughout Judea. And in this encounter with King Agrippa II, Paul is reminding his listeners that God has kept his word. God has kept his promise and that God, by God's strength, is the only thing that's gotten him through life's storms and helps Paul stand where he was able to stand at this moment in time to share about the hope that's found in Jesus. It's not but Paul, it's but God. Paul had faith in God and he stood firm on his promises. And in doing so, his faith outlasted his own human accomplishments because it's faith that points others to Jesus. That's what we remember about the Apostle Paul's life is his witness for Christ. It's his faith. And we have so many things in our life that I think it's easy to allow those things to, to creep in. And, and, you know, I had a conversation this morning even. I, I see too many Christians walking around defeated. Too many Christians walk around defeated because of life's storms, because of the things that, that go on. And it's like you think we weren't in God's word being reminded about these promises. And I know there's a wide spectrum of people who like love to read and man, you read, you read God's word every day and there's others you just don't like to read, but where else are we going to go to learn about God's promises? Where else are we going to go to learn about what he said? I, I hope that you're not just relying on a message on Sunday and I, I hope you're not just relying on a class throughout the week and we need to be people of the word and people of the way diving deep into the word of God so that we're reminded about who God is and about who we are in Christ. So many people walk around defeated because I don't think they're in God's word. They're not reminding themselves about who Jesus is. And then we let all these things that really don't matter start to creep in and they just destroy our lives. And God is, I, I just, I believe that, that, that grieves the heart of God. Because then the outside world looks at followers of Jesus and they think, I don't want to be like that. And you talk about this hope and we talk about this, this joy that comes from Jesus, but man, you got, you got more issues and, and you're, you're down more than I am. And, and being a Christian doesn't mean that all of life's problems are going to go away. In fact, sometimes it's the opposite, but it does mean that we have a joy that is unchangeable by the world because we are in Christ. Amen. The world cannot take that away. God has given us thousands of promises in his word. And these are promises that are always for the good of God's people. But there's also another side of the coin to God's promises. And that is that they remind us that we need to be 100% dependent on God because he is 100% dependable. See, having a sincere faith in Christ and building our lives on the promises of God, this is what equips us for this journey called life. And our faith will always outlive any other human accomplishment that we might have because faith will point others to Jesus. 
The third and final truth for today is this. That faith is the deeply held belief that God will keep his promises. It's a great definition for faith. That faith is the deeply held belief that God will keep his promises. There's an amazing story about an individual who had a real faith in the promises of God, and we find that in the book of Matthew, chapter 8. <coughs> Excuse me. Matthew 8, verses 5 through 10, and then also verse 13. I want to really wrap up the message by reading this story today. It's one of my favorites. It says, when Jesus returned to Capernaum, a Roman officer or a Roman centurion came and pleaded with him, Lord, my my young servant lies in bed, paralyzed and in terrible pain. And Jesus said, well, I will come and heal him. So Jesus is saying, I'll go to where you want me to go and I'll heal this person. But this is what the officer said. Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come into my home. In fact, just say the word from where you are and my servant will be healed. I want you to get this. Jesus is saying, hey, I'm going to come to where you're at. And this guy's saying, no, just say the word from where you're at. You don't even need to come to my house. Like, I believe you can heal him from where you're at. And he says, I know this because I'm under the authority of my superior officers and I have authority over my soldiers. I only need to say go and they go or come and they come. And if I say to my slaves, do this, they do it. And when Jesus heard this and the Bible says that he was, and what's the word? Amazed. And then turning to those who were following him. These are Jesus followers that he's turning to. He says, I tell you the truth. I haven't seen faith like this in all of Israel. Like you guys think that you're, you're living out your faith and you're building your lives based on having faith in Jesus and on the promises of God. He said, I haven't seen faith like this in all of Israel. And then Jesus said to the Roman officer, this is verse 13, go back home. He says, because you believed it has happened. And the young servant was healed that same hour. I don't know if you knew this, but this is the only time in all of the New Testament that Jesus was amazed, that that Greek word that we have for amazed here, by something that someone else did or said. It's the only time. So what was Jesus amazed at? Well, in this story, he was amazed at this Roman officer, this Roman centurion's faith. One author wrote that Jesus was amazed because the man believed in the power of Jesus to keep his word. And this is just one story of many that illustrates the truth that faith is the deeply held belief that God will keep his word, that God will keep his promises. See, this Roman officer understood the simple truth that God will not break his promises. He will not break his word. And that's a truth that I believe God wants all of us to have as well. So where are we headed over the next few weeks? Over the next few weeks, we're going to spend our time looking at three very important promises that God has made to his people in his word. Today's message is really meant to kind of help set the foundation, to be a reminder that God is trustworthy, to be a reminder that God is dependable. And now as we begin to kind of pull the curtain back and look at what God's word has to say, we know that we can trust him. These are promises that uh, we can have hope in, the promises that we can build our lives on. And again, there are thousands of promises throughout God's word, all of which are for the good of God's people, and all of which point us back to the dependability of God. They never try to show us that we can do it by our own strength or our own works. It always points back to the dependability of God. 
So I've got a little bit of homework for you today. This is good. Throughout this series, I want to challenge you uh, to be in God's word. I want to challenge you to open God's word and read through the book of Acts um, as a church. And we're going to read one chapter a day, starting today. And then by the time our series is finished, we'll, we'll have completed the book of Acts together. It's going to God's word that we're reminded about God's character and his nature. Also, the, the, the book of Acts is a great book to see how God used the early church and what I believe what, what God wants to do with his people today. As you read, I want you to begin to look for the promises of God. There are promises on almost every single page of scripture. And the question I want to leave you with today is this. The question is not, will God keep his word? The question is not, will God keep his promises? The question is this, will we build our lives upon them? Or will we allow the world to define us and mold us and shape us? That's the question.